0: I'm going to play a devil's advocate here, Do right? It. Do it. If you're talking about a, a compensatory mechanism because the cells are having so much calories, so much energy, mm-hmm. and it's trying to block further you know, input of lipids, for example, why didn't this mechanism target uh, CD36 or fat, fatty acid transporters? Instead, it targets insulin, which has an overall effect on all types of substrates going into the cell. Hi, this is Dr. Latmansour, your host on Health via Modern Nutrition podcast. In this episode we have Cyrus and Robbie, who are co-authors of the New York Times best-selling book Mastering Diabetes and the co-founders of Mastering Diabetes, a coaching program that helps people reverse insulin resistance with low-fat, plant-based, and whole-food nutrition. Cyrus has been living with type 1 diabetes since 2002 and has an undergraduate degree from Stanford University and a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from UC Berkeley. Robbie was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 2000 and has been living a plant-based lifestyle since 2006. He also has a master's degree in public health in 2019. In this episode, Robbie shared his story living with type 1 diabetes and how insulin resistance could still occur, even with the absence of insulin. Now, to make it more interesting, Cyrus also explained in detail how lipids may increase inflammation that could cause insulin resistance. We covered quite a lot of information from energetics biochemistry to disease progression to tricks and tips to reverse diabetes. If you are interested, I hope you will enjoy this episode as much as I did, and stay tuned. Thank you, Robbie and Cyrus, for coming on to Health Via Modern Nutrition Podcast. How are you guys today?
1: Can't complain, can't complain. Thanks for having us here. I can't wait to have a fun conversation.
2: Yeah. I'm doing great. It's going to be a lot of fun today.
0: Yeah, I'm, I, I know you guys' um, you know, expertise is in diabetes, one of my favorite subjects. Um, you know, I did my research in diabetes and metabolism. So can't wait to dive deeper into your book, Mastering Diabetes, as well. But before that, let me ask you you know one question the first question i want to ask is is there really a way to reverse insulin resistance permanently as you 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 claim it in your book
1: 100 percent. there's no question about it and um, we can tell you that from multiple different perspectives number one we can tell you it from personal experience and personal experience is important but it's not the you know it's not the end all be all it's just an end of one story and then uh, i can tell it to you also from the uh, academic side of things from the actual nutritional research and then third, we can talk to you about it from the perspective of empirical stories of working with thousands of other people who have also been able to integrate a more plant focused lifestyle and seen dramatic improvements to their diabetes health. And also specifically, uh, you know, reducing insulin resistance and or getting rid of it completely.
0: Cause I know in the medical world, they tend to use the word remission instead of, you know, Full reversal um that's why i wanted to ask you know because it, it, you know that's a bold claim right and permanently um and obviously there's a lot of caveat that comes with a lot of you know precautions that people need to pay attention to that we're going to go into so let's go straight into um your background and your stories um mike to you guys and introduce yourself to our listeners
1: for sure let's go back here real quick uh, about the the details of remission versus mm-hmm. reversal so I've thought about this, I've talked about it, I've read about it, you know, for lots of hours. And what I think my conclusion is, is that a lot of it is just words. A lot of it is just pure semantics. What I might consider to be a reversal, you might use the word remission or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Right? And it doesn't seem like there's a a one-size-fits-all consensus within the medical world, especially even with the American Diabetes Association, as to what is considered. A true reversal of pre-diabetes or type two diabetes. How much time is involved? What does your A one C have to be? Do you have to succeed on a euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp? Do you have to pass an oral glucose tolerance test? If so, how many times over what period of time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, therefore, let's talk about this in detail because I think it definitely has to be, uh, you know, delved in, in in a lot of detail. But I think a lot of it just boils down to what words you choose to use. And, you know, hopefully we can try and get rid of a lot of the confusion and help people get a lot of clarity in the subject. Absolutely. Okay. So, Rob, you want to tell your story first?
2: Sure. So uh, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 12 years old. I was just about to turn 13 at the time. So i was urinating all the time i was thirsty all the time i said hey mom i'm pretty sure i have diabetes just like steve so my older brother was diagnosed with type 1 nine years prior to me she said no robbie don't be silly you don't have diabetes i was like okay fine so i just kept on living life and dealing with it and then a couple weeks later my mom and dad had flown to florida because we were going to move there and i was living in minnesota at the time and she called to check in she's like hey like what's going on how's it going i'm like well couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping. She said, okay, go upstairs, use your brother's blood glucose meter and test yourself. And I did. And I was over 400 milligrams per deciliter. And I really, you know, shouldn't be, I'm sure your audience knows this, but I shouldn't be above 140 as a healthy, non-diabetic individual. And so my brother said right then and there, you have type 1 diabetes, pack your bag, you're going to be in the hospital for the few night, for a few nights. So we drove to the regular doctor first. They ran some tests. I don't even know what tests they did run. But then the doctor came in the room and he said, hey, yep, you have type 1 diabetes. And that was the first time I'd actually seen my older brother cry. He was just like, oh, I'm just sorry, you have to deal with this. And then we drove to the hospital and my parents came back the next night and they said, look, don't worry, this is just an inconvenience. You can still, you know, live a great life and your dreams can come true. So that was really the mentality my parents sort of uh, had towards my brother and I and really in hindsight it was a a blessing that my older brother already had type one because my parents weren't freaking out like we knew what to do I was quite familiar with what to handle you know what to do and all that because I watched my brother go through it for all these years so it wasn't really some necessarily like a huge earth-shattering thing I kind of like got got to ease into it pretty gracefully And we went to the Mayo Clinic. So we lived in St. Cloud, Minnesota at the time, and my parents wanted to make sure we had the best medical care possible. So we went to the Mayo Clinic together, and we checked in, uh, I think it was every six months or so. And we had a team there, it was like a two-day event. I would see an endocrinologist, I would see a psychologist, I would see a nutritionist. And at no point did anybody mention to me, hey, you know, there's things you can do To improve your insulin sensitivity, to make insulin work more efficiently. And there's things you can do to reduce your risk of long term complications. That was not mentioned to me at the time. It was really just, we want you to feel normal. At that time, I was in middle school. It's like, hey, you know what? Like, here's the food pyramid. Let me, like, we'll give you some tips. They gave my mom some tips, what to eat and all that. And, you know, she tried to follow it to the best of her ability. They said, hey, make sure he has a fruit at dinner. So, my fruit, my serving of fruit would be like a can of mandarin oranges <laughs> with high fructose corn syrup or strawberries with some powdered sugar on top. That was my version of not having fruit. And so we followed this, this standard American diet. And overall, I would say my, my diabetes control was generally good. I think my highest A1C back then was probably in the mid-sevens, like seven and a half, seven six, something like that. So I never was really like, terribly out of control. But I did develop some really standard American diet symptoms. So I was a competitive tennis player and I developed plantar fasciitis, which was really frustrating. So it's a really painful condition in the arches of your feet. And I had to wear these big blue boots at night to do some passive stretching. I would get sick every year. I took Claritin D and Nasonex and still got sick every year. And as a teenager, I developed cystic acne, which was really frustrating. And at this time I was living in Florida and my mom would take me to the dermatologist and they did everything. They gave me creams. They gave me certain pills to try. They we did this laser treatments, did derma abrasion, like all this stuff. Eventually they put me on Accutane, which is, you know, one of the most serious drugs you can possibly take for acne. And you know, I wasn't necessarily thriving. So that was that was some of the frustrating symptoms I had to deal with. But really What changed my life was a book that I am not going to recommend, okay? (laughs) Let me tell you that, all right? The book is called Kevin Trudeau's Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About, all right? So this guy was on infomercials, and he was, some of your listeners might remember this guy. It was like a very handsome looking guy. The book is purple, and he was selling millions of copies through his infomercials. And eventually he went to jail for some fraud or something like that. So it's not necessarily a trustworthy person here. But what that book did is it planted a seed in my mind that, you know what, maybe it's possible to reverse type 1 diabetes, okay? And I thought, you know what, there has to be the first person to do just about everything. If you look back in history, all the amazing things we've done, there was a certain time in history that everybody thought that wasn't possible. So when Roger Bannister attempted to run a four-minute mile, the smartest people in the world thought, that's not possible, like, you just can't do that. And then he did, and now many people can run a four-minute mile. So... I just came into it with that mindset. And I started to learn everything I could in this sort of alternative medicine world. I just started doing anything and everything. And it was all a bunch of little things. It's like, oh, you know, maybe some of the additives in your food aren't the best. Maybe try and avoid those. Hey, you know what? Maybe it's better to have some more organic food and try to limit your pesticide exposure. It was just like little things. And I tried a lot, of, a lot of stuff, really all with this mission of like, if I am the healthiest human being I possibly can be from the inside out, maybe I can get these beta cells to regenerate and naturally, and then I can you know not need to inject insulin anymore. That's not happened. I have not solved that problem yet. I still think we will, okay? But along the way, I did discover a lot of really fun things. And for me, the, the biggest change was my improvement in insulin sensitivity. So as a person living with type 1 diabetes, I monitor the carbohydrates I'm consuming so I know how much insulin to inject, and I have data on my CGM, or back then I was just a blood glucose meter. So we have these three pieces of data. And that's sort of an advantage we have, because you know most people listening, if you're not living with insulin-dependent diabetes, you can't measure your insulin use on a day-by-day basis or moment-by-moment basis, essentially. We don't even figure that out yet. The person who does invent that and has, like, a a way to monitor insulin the same way we can with the CGMs, that's going to be a really, really powerful invention. But we don't have that yet. So, again, in this attempt to heal as much as I possibly could from the inside out, I did end up healing the plantar fasciitis. That went away. And I attribute that to just a reduction in inflammation. I do, I'm a competitive athlete at this point. I'm you know doing triathlons and all that. I don't have any pain in my feet. It's great that, that whole thing went away. Um, I do not take Nasonex or Claritin-D or take allergy medication. All that went away. I don't, I don't have that problem anymore. My skin cleared up dramatically. So that was fantastic. But along the journey, I I tried many different diets and ended up trying sort of like a Weston A. Price Foundation diet. And all the things I tried, I have like nothing negative to say about all of it. Like it was all part of the journey and everything made sense at the time. And I learned a little more. So like I, I think I'm just grateful for all these teachers and all these people that were part of my journey that I could learn from. So the Weston A. Price Foundation, I was like, oh, hey, you know what? Maybe it's better to have raw milk instead of pasteurization. Like, you know, back in the day, we didn't have pasteurization, and that was good. Uh, Hey, maybe you should be eating grass-fed beef instead of the beef from the factory farms. It was a lot of stuff like that, and I started doing a lot of that. I didn't see much of a big difference in my diabetes health when I did that. And then eventually I tried to do some crazy teas from a Chinese herbalist in California, (laughs) and that didn't really do that much. Um, And then the last thing I tried before I do what I'm doing now was a a plant-based ketogenic diet. And this I learned from Dr. Gabriel Cousins. And this was sort of popularized through a documentary called raw for 30 days. And there was this guy, Kurt Tyson in there who was really inspiring. I got in touch with him and I started eating a diet where I had no more than 30 grams of net carbohydrate. So it was actually ended up being about 70 grams of total carbohydrate because there was that much fiber, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of greens, a lot of celery, the calories were coming from foods like nut butters, plenty of cashews, um, oil was fine, so stuff like that. And so I did that program, and my insulin use came down, right? So, and if you can, you can use software like Chronometer today, and you can figure out exactly how much glucose you're consuming, right? So you can, you can suss out the, the, um, the, Basically, you can do math to figure out exactly how much glucose, all right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, the starch is pure glucose, all right? Then you take the sucrose, you split it in half, right? So you you can get rid of fructose, you can get rid of fiber. So I needed about 10 units of total insulin for 10 grams of glucose. That's what I needed when I did a plant-based ketogenic diet. So that's a a one-to-one, 24-hour insulin sensitivity ratio when you look at total insulin use, total glucose consumed over that period of time, all right? So I did that, and the reason I decided to change is I just, for me, I had low energy. Um, I was losing weight. I just wasn't feeling my best. I was a college student at the University of Florida, in college at this time. And so, you know, I'm like, you know what, let me see what else is out there. I went back to a naturopath.
0: And and to put it into perspective, is like 10 unit per 10 gram of glucose. Is that high or is that low for our listeners to... Um, as far
2: as insulin sensitivity goes, based on what I've now experienced, that would be that'd be pretty insulin resistant. That that that's low level of insulin sensitivity. Got it. So, I go to this naturopath, and the naturopath is like, "Oh, you know what? Maybe what you need is you need to do some chelation therapy." I'm like, "Okay, well, you know, I'll do anything at this point. I, I'm I'm a, I'm an open student." <laughs> and before I committed to doing that. I heard a podcast, which is funny to say while doing a podcast, (laughs) and this podcast um, changed my life. It was this guy, Doug Graham, and he was talking about how a a fruit-based diet was, you know, a really beneficial, healthy way to eat. And I, I love fruit. I had been avoiding fruit for a while now and was like, wow, like this sounds really interesting. And he did say there was somewhere in that podcast where he mentioned how, well, if you're eating well, And this fruit-based diet, you can actually cleanse some heavy metals just with your dietary protocol. It's like, wow, that's interesting. It'd be better than going and do this chelation therapy. So let me give it a shot. So I end up contacting him, getting in touch, and we do a coaching program. And I email him like every single day for 90 days straight. He emails me back every day for 90 days straight. And I learn how to do his fruit-based eating protocol. And I remember, this is 2006, right? So... This is right around Christmas, 2006. And he puts me on this program where I start eating. In the beginning, it was just bananas. <laughs> it was just, just eating bananas. And I come down to Christmas dinner, and I have a pyramid of bananas on a plate. So like five on the bottom row, then four, then three, then two, like a pyramid of bananas. That's my Christmas dinner. And at this point, my parents had seen me go through so many different diets, so many different things. They thought this was a phase, right? Like, this isn't gonna last. <laughs> Let's just see how it goes. And sure enough, we're now 16 years later and uh, I still get to enjoy uh, you know, large meals of, of fruit and greens and vegetables and all that. So what ended up happening is my total carbohydrate intake, including fiber, including fructose, okay, now goes above 700, okay? If you take out fiber, you take out fructose, we're going to get to roughly like 300 grams of glucose per day. So I went from 10 grams of glucose to 300 grams of glucose per day on this new fruit-based eating protocol. And my insulin use goes up to a physiologically normal amount. So now my total insulin use this is long-acting and short-acting is, is on average about 30 units a day, right? It, it could be a little lower with, with increased fitness and whatnot, but on average, call it 30. So now we're talking a 10 to 1 carbohydrate to insulin ratio when you're talking about glucose and insulin use. And that is a 900% change in insulin sensitivity. And so this was really eye-opening. And at this point, I'm a freshman at the University of Florida, and I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. And I have a chance to go look at basically any research paper I want to get my hands on, and they helped me dig up some really old stuff. And this information was documented back to the 1920s, right? So insulin discovered in 1921, first used in humans in 1922. And you got a paper in 1926 with Dr. Sansom in JAMA talking about increasing carbohydrate intake and seeing insulin requirements basically stay the same. So we're seeing improved insulin sensitivity back when insulin was even just discovered. So this was mind-boggling. And so I'm, I'm, I'm having fun. Like, I'm feeling great. I'm enjoying the food. Uh, My A1C is coming down, so I got my A1C into a great place. I remember around then it was like 5.9. My current A1C, 16 years later, it's 5.3%. I use a Dexcom G6 for my CGM, and I have a time and range consistently around 90%, with my lows being no more than 4%. So, that to me is really important, because when you're living with Type 1, and you have a low A1C. This sometimes is that like red flag of, oh, well, they're just going low all the time. You have so many lows. It's bouncing out the highs. It's really not actually a healthy A1C. But the 5.3 A1C is really based on just rock solid blood glucose control, not a bunch of lows. And so I found that I could eat this whole carbohydrate-rich food and see very predictable, very steady blood glucose control. And it really got me excited. So this was, again, you know 16 years ago, and really nothing's changed and I kept on learning more, I eventually went back to get a master's in public health, back to school, and um, now Cyrus and I, we've joined forces to basically share about this option. Hey, you know what, if, if you want to eat this way, if you want to enjoy carbohydrate-rich food, this is an option, like this exists, and
0: um, we're having a lot of fun doing it. Great. Thank you so much for the story. One quick question before we move on to Cyrus's story as well. Um, you spoke about insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity in type 1 diabetes. I, my previous experience was in type 2 diabetes and, and a lot of school of thought around, you know, having the high level of insulin, high level of elevation of insulin cause insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. And there is also a school of thought that talked about inflammation causing the, the, the insulin resistance. Why does um, type 1 diabetes also have insulin resistance problems, given that they are not being exposed to insulin all the time? So where does this insulin resistance develop from? Well,
2: I'll give just a brief answer based on my experience and let Cyrus talk to a little bit more of the nutritional biochemistry here. Mm -hmm. But from my experience, as a person living with type 1 diabetes, the goal is to inject a physiologically normal amount of insulin right? So my C-peptide is less than 0.1. It's 0.01. Like, it's undetectable. I'm not producing any insulin at this point, uh, living with type 1 for over 22 years now. So I want to inject what my pancreas would have normally secreted had I been following a healthy diet for longevity, right? So... Me e- eating the diet I'm eating now and injecting roughly 30 units. That's a physiologically normal amount of insulin. It's going to be it depends on your gender, your age, your height, and all that stuff. But like you know, 20 to 50 or so units is like ballparkish where where somebody should be. So that to me, from living with type 1, if I'm for, if I'm injecting 70 units a day, 80, 100, 120, which is quite normal for the type 1 community, that's it's like a red flag right there. Like there's some insulin resistance going on. And that's not even, that alone is just that much insulin, something is off. But then again, then let's talk about, okay, well, how many grams of carbohydrate are they consuming? How many grams of glucose is that 100 units of insulin metabolizing? And then it becomes even more obvious that that person is living with some form of insulin resistance, some level of insulin resistance. And then when you know they start adopting even some of the principles of the mastering diabetes method, and you see they you know, glucose consumption, carbohydrate intake, increase, while insulin decreases. Again, that's pretty clear, from my perspective, a pretty clear display of insulin sensitivity improving. And again, you want to get to the point where you're injecting a physiologically normal amount of insulin.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because it, it, from your story, what impression I'm having is having, you know, almost like a transgenic mice model that it can't secrete insulin. So that's being type one diabetes and, and then you're seeing variation in insulin sensitivity, which also points towards there is something else at play, which could be the diet, which could be, you know, the, the body trying to compensate or whatever. Um, let's go to Cyrus. What, what do you think? And and then we'll go to your story and your background.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay. So let's go back to the the original question that you asked. And, and just let me be very clear about this. I, I realize that you come from a ketogenic perspective and, um, you know, have done a significant amount of research in the world of ketosis. And we come literally from the exact opposite background. So what 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 I think we can do here in this conversation is make sure that we sort of share our own research knowledge and experience. But also, I don't expect us to agree. Let's put it that way, right? But well, let's okay. make, let,
0: me make, let me make one thing clear first though. As sure. I you know, as a metabolism physiologist, um first of all, HVMN itself is not a ketogenic company. We do sell exogenous ketone and that in a lot of ways uh, may not, you know, some a lot of our ketogenic experts, like the old school, like ketogenic diet researchers do not agree with exogenous ketones. Um, but what we believe is that it could serve as a supplementation to a keto diet. But most of all in performance, we actually advise our athletes to take it with carbs because you have that dual fuel um, hybrid system as well as the glycogen sparing effect Given that you have glycogen to begin with, whereas if you're on a ketogenic diet, you don't have glycogen, then there is nothing to spare, even if you take exogenous ketones. So me, I'm very clear in terms of metabolism. We always talk a lot on this show, on this podcast, about the Goldilocks zone. That is what it is about metabolism. You don't want too low. You don't want too high. There is no one substrate that is always being demonized, demonized, and and always bad. You need a certain substrate for a certain sur- stimulus and for certain situations so you know let's make that clear and we'll you know we are here for the
1: integrity of science good 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 good, okay I'm glad we can establish that right because the, the truth is that if you look into the uh, the nutritional research you know it, it can be hard to understand if you have a simple question that you reach to say you know what's better for me a ketogenic diet or low carbohydrate diet or a plant-based diet and try and figure out what is the actual answer to that it can get pretty confusing pretty quickly. And it's not until you spend, in my professional opinion, hundreds of hours delving into the details of what's happening in your liver, what's happening in your pancreas, what's happening in your vasculature, what's happening in your brain, what's happening, how are those uh, tissues speaking with each other, what's happening in your gut. But not only that, what is going to happen over the course of time, and I do believe time is a huge variable that, unfortunately, the low-carbohydrate world doesn't do a good job of um, taking into account. Meaning, a lot of the research in the low-carbohydrate world is focused on shorter-term outcomes and not on longer-term outcomes. Separate discussion, but my point is that Unless you spend hundreds of hours or even thousands of hours delving into this research, it can become pretty confusing pretty quick. So, you know, just like you were saying, the difference between endogenous ketones and exogenous ketones, that's a whole world unto itself, right? There's a whole bunch of conversation that we can have about that. And some people,
0: to some people, long term, it's three years is long term, five years is long term. But some people actually mean 10 years, 20 years. Um, That means long term. Like, time is so relative to, to people and to research as well.
1: Yeah, exactly right. You nailed it. So... Okay. So to answer your question, you, you you brought up a question. You said, well, you know, if insulin resistance is all about being hyperinsulinemic, a.k.a. having excess insulin in your blood, then how is it possible that people with type 1 diabetes who ha- are insulin deficient can actually also be insulin resistant? And what I would say is let's go backwards to the beginning. The pathogenesis of insulin resistance can have something to do with excess insulin production, but doesn't always have to. Okay. So if we say that insulin resistance is caused by hyperinsulinemia, we're confusing cause and effect, okay? Insulin resistance is not caused by hyperinsulinemia. And I know that's what the, most of the, the diabetes world wants to believe. Hyperinsulinemia is, a, is an effect, is a, is a consequence of insulin resistance. So if we had a chicken and now not a chicken and egg, if we had a domino, you know, set of dominoes that we were constructing, the first domino would be what is causing insulin resistance and then downstream from that one of the effects would be elevated insulin production or i should say elevated insulin concentrations in your blood okay so let's go back to the very 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 beginning so that people have a really good understanding of what's happening okay insulin resistance is caused by the consumption of excess dietary lipid most people believe and most people if you look at all the research i know there's a lot of people who will probably just turn this podcast off right now and be like oh that guy's a quack he doesn't know what he's talking about right um, because the the majority of the diabetes world wants to say that diabetes is caused by the consumption of excess carbs and or sugar. So you always hear this, carb, sugar, carb, sugar, carb, sugar. It's all bad for you, right? And that's what sets the stage for insulin resistance down the road. Um, and the story goes that when you consume excess carbohydrate and or consume refined sugar, that that then causes your liver to become insulin resistant. It causes your liver to produce to, to increase the production and the conversion of easy, simple carbohydrates that come from refined sources into dietary fat. And then the conversion of glucose into fat increases the lipid storage inside of the liver, which makes the liver more insulin resistant that then increases the production of lipids from your liver. And it, um, it sets the stage for your liver to be able to not metabolize glucose when present inside of your blood so you make your liver insulin resistant that fat either stays inside of your liver or it travels to your adipose tissue and it also makes your adipose tissue grow so now you're increasing adiposity and you're making your liver insulin resistant at the same time that also increases hepatic glucose output hgp or sorry h uh hepatic glucose output hgo and that then increases your blood glucose levels okay so the consumption of sugar starts this you know domino effect that then puts you down the insulin resistance path as a result of that when you consume more glucose or more refined sugar then your pancreas says wait a minute i have to secrete excess glucose excess insulin in order to get these glucose molecules into your liver and into your muscle because the liver's already be developing a state of insulin resistance so, if that's the case, now your, your pancreas starts to increase its production of insulin, and now you are hyperglycemic and hyperinsulinemic simultaneously. And so, as a result of that, uh, your insulin concentrations increase, and then people say, aha, boom, that's it right there. The, the, you know, you're hyperinsulinemic, and you're insulin resistant at the same time, so it must be the insulin that's causing the insulin resistance. And the increased amount of insulin then causes the insulin receptors on, in your liver and on your muscle to basically invaginate and become less productive or less effective. And as a result of that, the insulin receptors in both of those tissues, um, you know, they, they fold inwards and they become more dysfunctional. And as a result of that, excess insulin production then starts a cascade of events, which makes it so that your liver and your muscle are no longer as responsive to the glucose. So now as a result of that you're in this very challenging situation where you're consuming excess carbohydrates slash sugar that's setting the stage for liver insulin resistance that's setting the stage for excess insulin production which then becomes a feed forward cycle and now you become more and more and more insulin resistant more insulin production more glucose more insulin production more glucose and you end up spinning out of control. Okay. That's the sort of traditional world is is that the world that you were referring to.
0: Yes, that's the world that I'm referring to, and and let me ask you this as well. Like to your to your um, sort of scenario, right? The increase Mm -hmm. in lipid dietary lipids, the cause the increase in adiposity and increase in insulin resistance. Now, can that also happen with just simply an increase of calorie intake, regardless whether it's lipids or carbs? Most of the time, people are taking both lipids and carbs, you know, they're increasing fat intake, they're increasing carbs intake, but let's face it, mo- not many people are going to, you know, get excessive calories from proteins. In fact, most people don't, ha- ha- don't eat enough proteins. So it, would that be the cause, or is it specifically lipid intake that is causing this increase in adipos- adiposity and insulin resistance? I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge our sponsors of this show, Ketone IQ, the best exogenous ketone you can take to elevate your blood ketone levels. I personally take it every day before a podcast to wire my brain up, before and after my workout to really feel my body. So give yourself a chance, take a shot and you will feel the difference within minutes. So head over to HVMN.com and use the code HVMNPOD20, that is is 20 for 20% off your purchase and enjoy your ketone
1: IQ and give your brain the perfect fuel? It's a phenomenal question. It's a phenomenal question. And the answer is it's both, but it depends on to what degree the excess occurs. Okay, so let's just say that your, your calorie requirement, we've done an energy balance on you and we found that your calorie requirement is about 2,200 calories per day, okay? So you consume 2,200 calories per day, your body metabolizes 2,200 calories per day, and therefore you're in energy balance. So the amount of energy you take in is equal to the amount of energy that you expend and therefore your weight stable, right? Let's just say that you increased your calorie intake from 2200 to 2400 calories per day. So now you're consuming 200 excess calories per day. The question is, is that going to translate to weight gain? Yes or no? And if so, how quickly is that going to happen? So you could write on a piece of paper. You could say, "Okay, cool. You know, we've got 200 calories of excess energy that's coming into your metabolic machine on a daily basis. And if we multiply that times 20 days, 200 times 20 gives us approximately 4,000. 4,000 calories is the equivalent of one pound of fat, one pound of adipose tissue. And therefore, we might make an estimation that it'll take you about 20 days of eating 200 calories excess in order for you to gain approximately one pound. But if we actually played that out and we let it go, chances are you probably wouldn't gain that pound. And the reason for that is because your hypothalamus and your pituitary gland are playing a game where they can sense your calorie intake. So if you're a little bit excess on your calorie intake, you actually might slightly, your thyroid gland might slightly increase its thyroid hormone output. And as a result of that, you might end up just increasing your energy output by just enough so that you reattain energy balance. So that now you're taking on 2,400 calories and you're burning, let's say, 2,350 and you're effectively weight stable at that point, right? So there's a little bit of wiggle room that can happen in a positive direction or negative direction to, you know, adjusting the amount of um, the thyroid hormone output, right? And the amount of, um, there's a hormone upstream of thyroid hormone, which is called TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, Okay. So your, your, your hypothalamus and your pituitary gland can basically adjust the signals that they send to your thyroid gland, and as a result of that, your energy balance can fluctuate by a couple hundred calories, plus or minus, and everything stays just fine, okay? However, if you go to a situation in which you're now deciding that you want to eat 600 excess calories per day, 800 excess calories per day, Now you have a problem because your pituitary gland and your hypothalamus will try and correct for that and maybe increase your energy output just a little bit, but they're not going to be able to increase it by 600 to 800 calories per day. And as a result of that, you're going to likely still have excess calories that you're taking on. And that's likely to translate to weight gain over the course of time. So it'll translate to weight gain, which will translate to excess adiposity and excess adiposity itself is going to translate to increased insulin resistance because the two of those are linked and excess adiposity will certainly set the stage for an increased risk for diabetes, -diabetes, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes in particular, okay? Now, let's go backwards. We talked about the story of carbohydrates and sugar setting the stage for insulin resistance in the canonical view of things. But there's an alternate story, and the alternate story is actually a story that started back in 1920 with some researchers, uh, you know, way back in the day that were using sort of what we consider to be relatively primitive techniques, but they discovered something fascinating, which is that dietary fat actually sets the stage for insulin resistance more effectively and more repeatable than dietary carbohydrate. So what they did is they started out using rabbits as a test model. Then they evolved to mice and then to rats and then eventually to monkeys and then eventually to humans and discovered that the same conserved mechanisms are present in all of these mammalian species. And what they found was that when you consume dietary lipid, you can influence your glucose level and insulin level within one meal, okay? You can negatively impact glycemia and insulinemia in the hours following a single meal. And if you repeat that pattern over and over and over again for breakfast today and lunch tomorrow and dinner the next day and multiple times per day, then you end up elevating your glucose Level and your insulin concentrations, and that then sets the stage for worsened glycemia and higher insulin levels in circulation at all times. Okay, so if you fast forward from the 1920s and then you go to the 1950s, okay, so originally the researchers that were working on it back in the day were like J.P. Hemsworth and Inder Singh and uh, Rabinowicz, okay, these are all like absolute classic, you know, researchers. Then in the 1950s, a lot of this information was uh, replicated by a professor at duke university uh named robbie i was forgetting his name
2: walter kempner
1: thank you walter kempner then in 1979 james w anderson repeated this and he did it in people without allowing them to lose any weight and saw dramatic reductions in their insulin use and then we fast forward now to the modern era we have doctors like dr neil barnard we have dr jared shulman from yale university Uh, and we have dr rodin and Dr. Bowden and beyond, who all have demonstrated the exact same thing. And what they show is that when you consume dietary fat, especially if it's saturated fat, the saturated fat negatively impacts the function of the insulin receptor in liver and muscle. Because the insulin receptor on both those tissues functions in a very similar manner. So what happens is that saturated fat can enter a cell through fatty acid transport proteins independent of You know exogenous signal. So in other words, fat can enter a liver muscle or i I'm sorry, a liver cell or a muscle cell without the use of insulin. Insulin will certainly help, don't get me wrong, but it can also enter in non-insulin dependent pathways. So as a result of that, saturated fat ends up making its way inside of the liver and inside of the muscle. And there's a lipid droplet, a section of the cell where these lipids can accumulate. They form a micellular structure and everything's fine. There's really no problems. That becomes a fuel depot. That fuel depot can then be used to, um, you know, to, to send to the mitochondrial network to generate ATP. There's really no problems. But when you overconsume fat, especially if it's saturated fat, then what ends up happening is that lipid droplet begins to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. So the lipid droplet is growing intracellularly, and the lipid droplet itself ends up creating secondary metabolites. Those secondary metabolites are not triacylglycerols, but they're diacylglycerols. So they're glycerols with two fatty acids instead of three and then they also generate these things called ceramids. So you have diacylglycerols and ceramids, both of which are very problematic because they're inflammatory molecules. These two molecules then make their way to the inside of the insulin receptor. Okay, here's where the story gets really interesting. The insulin receptor crosses the membrane. Okay, the insulin receptor has an an intracellular component and an extracellular component. What happens is that these ceramids and diacylglycerol, they come and they perform a post-translational modification to the inside of the insulin receptor, intracellularly, and they attach on to a specific domain. And as a result of that, what ends up happening is that the downstream signaling cascade that would normally be initiated when insulin docks, now that downstream signaling cascade is no longer that functional. So under normal circumstances, insulin would come and dock on its receptor. And that would send a message to the intracellular domains to then do their thing and initiate a whole cascade of different insulin signaling events. And those are all synthetic mechanisms required, you know, that, that generate, you know, that, that stimulate glycogen production, protein synthesis, fatty acid synthesis, RNA synthesis, DNA synthesis, any kind of synthetic mechanism. But what ends up happening in this situation is that insulin docks on its on its receptor and the post translational modifications happen on the inside of the cellular of the of the intracellular environment now makes it so that these things called the IRS molecules can't dock you have IRS1 and IRS2 and they, they can't dock on the intracellular domain and those are the critical rate limiting proteins that are required in order to translate the signal intracellularly to get all those other synthetic processes to begin and so as a result of that insulin docks at the outside in the extracellular environment but the signal doesn't get relayed inside nearly as effectively
0: so, so that causes insulin resistance
1: exactly so so effectively what a cell does the the reason that that, that mechanism occurs if you go back evolutionary and try to figure out well why the heck would excess lipid actually impair I it? was
0: about to ask that because yeah. most of the time when a mechanism occurs our bodies most often than not, are not doing those reactions, are not making those pathways on those reactions to harm us. Correct. Our, our first and foremost instinct is to survive. So most often than not, these mechanisms are a compensatory mechanism or a um, salvation sort of, sort of mechanism. So tell us.
1: Yeah. In other words, why the heck would you design the liver and the muscle to, to impair the function of an insulin receptor when there's excess lipid? What is the point? right? And you're absolutely right. There's there, The reason that this would happen is actually, it's very simple. It's not that obvious from the get-go, but it is a self-defense mechanism. And what a cell is responding to, one of the things that a cell can respond to is excess energy, okay? Excess calories that come in from any source. And the calories are going to either come in from fatty acids, amino acids, or glucose. Those are the only three calorie sources. Technically speaking, ethanol too, but we're going to exclude that. So what happens in this scenario is that there's excess fatty acids, which effectively means there's an excess fuel depot. There's excess storage of calories inside of that cell. And that cell basically says, hold on a second, hold on a second. I don't have space for this. I don't have room for this. This is beyond my physiological design. I was never meant to make this lipid droplet so large. I was never meant to generate so much diacylglycerol. I was never meant to generate so many ceramids, these are all downstream effects of this lipid droplet. How do I get this lipid droplet to get smaller? Or how do I get this thing to stop growing? And one of the most effective things that any cell in your body can do if it wants to limit the, in, the amount of new calories or new energy that comes into the cell is block insulin. Because insulin is your number one most, uh, most powerful, it's the primary anabolic hormone in your body. Okay? Insulin stimulates more fuel uptake and growth processes than any other hormone in circulation, period, end of story, more than growth hormone, more than testosterone, more than estrogen, you name it, nothing is as powerful as insulin. So if a cell is basically saying, hey, there's too much energy coming in, how do I slow this energy input? I know, let me just find a way to not respond to insulin. And that's the way, because these ceramids basically go and they they cause this post-translational modification, they impair the uh, the ability of the insulin receptor to do its job. And now the cell is basically in a, what I refer to as an insulin rejection regime or an insulin resistance regime, where it says, you know what? I'm not gonna pay attention to you, insulin, because you're gonna put more stuff inside of me and I don't want any more stuff. Get this stuff away from me, right? So as a result of that, the cell goes into a self-protective mode. It basically doesn't communicate with insulin as well. So now insulin, Begins to accumulate inside of your blood because insulin is having a difficult time docking onto those receptors. And some of the insulin does dock onto the receptor, but then it undocks from the receptor because the receptor didn't translate the, the, the signal intracellularly. And now insulin is basically free floating in your blood in excess concentrations. So as a result of that, insulin can't do its job. Insulin tries to dock and tries to get glucose out of the blood, but it doesn't really work. So as a result of that, well, guess what happens? Your glucose level starts to rise as well. So first, insulin begins to accumulate and become hyperinsulinemic. That's the first thing that happens. And then the next time you eat something that's glucose rich, okay, it could be literally one banana, it could be a mango, it could be a bowl of black beans, it could be some chips. Who knows? You eat something that's got a small amount of carbohydrate, like 15, 20 grams or so. And many people who are eating a low-carbohydrate diet or ketogenic diet will say the same thing. They will say, look, guys, I literally had one banana and my glucose shot up to 180. Okay, I'm telling you the banana is bad for me. And our response is, no, 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 no. It's not the banana's fault, okay? The banana has, is mainly constructed with a lot of carbohydrate energy. And the carbohydrate energy has a significant amount of glucose. The glucose from that banana what is now in circulation inside of your blood. It is literally trying to get into your liver and trying to get into your muscle where it belongs. But this metabolic traffic jam that you have created from all the fat rich foods that you have eaten prior to that banana has now created a roadblock. And that roadblock is now preventing the glucose from getting in. It's preventing from insulin signaling. So now you're both hyperglycemic and hyperinsulinemic simultaneously.
0: And how reversible is this?
1: It's very reversible. It's very reversible. That's the good news. That's the good news. So, so let's go backwards and we say, okay, there's two different stories. Story number one says it's all about carbohydrate. And story number two is that it's all about fat. Okay? And the truth is that both of them are at play. There's no question about it. Okay? It just so turns out that the research demonstrates that dietary fat is the preferred mechanism for inducing insulin resistance in laboratory animals and in humans. Okay? If you go into the research and you try and figure out how do you create insulin resistance, across the board, in in laboratory models they are using a high fat diet as a primary method of creating insulin resistance and there I are I did that
0: myself. I did that myself with my um, type 2 diabetic rats with high fat diet and streptozotocin. That's why I'm saying and tell you like I'm not all for 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 fat I'm not all for glucose I am all for optimizing. Good. Whatever that works for your body. Now I'm going to play a devil's advocate here, Do right? It. Do it. If you're talking about a, a compensatory mechanism because the cells are having so much calories, so much energy, mm-hmm. and it's trying to block further you know, input of lipids, for example, why didn't this mechanism target uh, CD36 or fat, fatty acid transporters? Instead, it targets insulin, which has an overall effect on all types of substrates going into the cell, you know, including glucose, including proteins and all that, amino acids. Amino acids yeah. So why, if if lipid is the problem, why isn't
1: this mechanism designed to specifically target fatty acid transporters? That's a phenomenal question, honestly. It's a phenomenal question, and I do not have the answer to your question, but I, I can hypothesize about why that may be the case. I
0: mean, this is literally me just thinking, you know, just listening to your story is so interesting. And, and you know, we, we as scientists, we always ask this kind of questions, like why this and not this, right?
1: Yeah, so, exactly yeah. right. You ask questions that cannot be answered, but I love it. because That's, what, <laughs>
0: that's <laughs> why we do science, to find yeah, exactly. out the answer.
1: Exactly. You're thinking like a true scientist here. So here, here's my hypothesis. Yeah. Um, as you know... Uh, fatty acid molecules contain nine calories per gram, as opposed to carbohydrate and amino. Sorry, I should say glucose and amino acids that contain four calories per gram. Okay, so because dietary fat is more than twice as calorie dense, when there's an excess of lipid, rather than selectively blocking lipid from coming in, the cell again is responding to yes, more you know excess lipid, but also just pure excess energy. So the cell doesn't want lipid. It also doesn't want amino acids. It also doesn't want glucose. So it basically says, shoot, I need a global mechanism to block or inhibit as much new energy transport coming into the cell as possible, and therefore it says, let's do this to insulin rather than saying, let me go block CD36 or any kind of lipid transport enzyme that's going to help block lipids only. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair.
1: Because I'm just thinking,
0: even if... You know, if, if lipid is a problem, if you have excess carbs, and then you sort of contribute towards the de novo lipogenesis, and then increasing the adiposity from the excess carb itself, then it will lead to the same sort of uh, uh, conclusion.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, I'm actually glad you brought up DNO, de novo lipogenesis, because when I was at UC Berkeley, I did my PhD under the supervision of Dr. Mark Hellerstein. Uh, Dr. Mark Hellerstein is one of the world's experts in carbohydrate metabolism. Um, There are very few things in this world that Mark Hellerstein doesn't know the answer to, and he is actually the world's foremost expert on DNL. Okay, So he developed a way to measure DNL uh, by scribbling it on the back of a napkin when he was at a bar, uh, when he was doing his MD-PhD at MIT, And then he then took that idea and went on to create an entire uh, mathematical and mass uh, spec-related measurement technique to measure DNL using stable isotopes that just blows away the competition, okay? So long story short, um, when it comes to DNL and everything related to DNL, he has conclusively demonstrated that DNL is actually a very, very, very small contributor to adiposity even in, number one, in human beings. It definitely happens to a larger extent in smaller animals because it's a thermogenic pathway that increases increases heat output, and that's necessary for animals that have to use that technique in order to maintain their core body temperature. But in human beings, it doesn't happen to a very large extent. And he's just shown, I'm just going to read you a couple of passages here from our book because I find this stuff absolutely fascinating. Yes, please. He says that... In people who eat a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, okay, so these people eating a, a low-carb diet, containing between 100 to 200 grams of fat per day, okay, w- less than one gram of newly synthesized fatty acids is, are made from DNL per day, which makes perfect sense. If you're consuming a lot of fat, there's no need to go ahead and convert glucose to fat because there just isn't enough substrate. period of story, okay? Now, in people who eat a low-fat diet, this is what we always get criticized for, say, guys, you're telling people to eat a bunch of fruit and potatoes, and that stuff is just going to get converted into fat and then stored in their liver or stored in their muscle tissue. Okay? And it turns out that in people who eat a high-carbohydrate diet containing between 65 to 75% of carbohydrate and 10 to 20% as fat, DNL accounts for less than 10 grams of newly synthesized fatty acids per day. Just, just do the math on that. Ten. So you're consuming a high-carbohydrate diet that's 65% to 75% carbohydrate, and you're only making 10 grams of carbohydrate. I mean, that's like, what is that? Like the weight of a paperclip or less. I mean, it's, it's nothing, right? But yet the low-carbohydrate world wants you to believe that by consuming a lot of carbohydrate, you're going to be making 50, 75, 100 grams of fat or more per day. Okay? Now,
0: does that well, depend on whether if the, the individual is in caloric balance or deficit or surplus
1: yeah these the study that i just uh the two studies that i was just demonstrating to you are for people who are in energy balance got it this study right here the third study is is a massive overfeeding experience uh experiment performed in individuals who are uh not in energy balance they are designed to be eating way in excess of their calorie needs okay So experiments have shown that DNL occurs in substantial quantities only in people who massively overeat carbohydrate energy. And when I say massively, I mean massively. Experiments show that people who eat approximately 2,000 grams of carbohydrate energy per day, which is 4,500 calories of excess energy for 7 to 10 days at a time, manufacture 150 grams of newly synthesized fatty acids from DNL per day. Okay? So if you want to trigger DNL, not only do you have to eat, overeat carbohydrate, you have to significantly overeat carbohydrate. And just having a couple hundred grams here there is not going to do the trick. You have to get to the thousands of grams per day level in order to actually turn on that DNL process because human beings have evolved away from DNL as a thermogenic process and as a, as a you know, glucose to fatty acid conversion process because we simply don't benefit from it any longer. So That's, that's my super
0: interesting. No, that is that is super interesting. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, showing that. Would you agree then, you know, more personalized approach when it comes to dietary intakes and substrate metabolism that, you know, maybe some people would benefit more for restri- from restricting carbs and some people would benefit more from restricting lipids. What I'm taking from this is the increase in calories in both at the same time, both lipids and carbs at the same time is not beneficial to anyone. But if you sort of restrict one and then have the other, no matter how much, unless if it's 2,000 grams worth of, you know, uh, um, sugar or 4,000 worth of calories, then it's probably going to, you know, balance out as your energy expenditure anyway.
1: Okay. So... Attaining calorie balance is definitely important in the long term because it's, it's, it's the way that you can sort of guarantee that you're not going to be gaining excess weight, okay? If you already do have excess weight, you want to actually induce a negative calorie balance because that's the only way that you're actually going to lose weight today and over the course of time, okay? That's right. That being said, your question is uh, true or false. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach, Right. Some people would benefit from a lower fat intake, some people would benefit from a lower carbohydrate intake, but practically no one is going to benefit from having both a high carbohydrate and high fat intake simultaneously. So I would definitely agree with that latter part, which is that high, high uh, you know, medium to high carbohydrate intake and medium to high fat intake is a recipe for disaster. And the the my understanding is the reason for that is because carbohydrate metabolism and lipid metabolism are like superman and kryptonite they are they are enemies of one another yeah all of the machinery Mm -hmm. all the enzymatic machinery inside of your adipose tissue and inside of your liver and inside of the mitochondrial network that is involved in lipid uh metabolism is literally directly opposed to all of the machinery the enzymatic machinery that's required for carbohydrate metabolism. So, when you upregulate your lipid enzymes, you downregulate your carbohydrate enzymes. Vice versa. When you upregulate your carbohydrate enzymes, you downregulate your lipid enzymes. And so, as a result of that, the two of them are effectively, you know, they're, they're yin and yang. You turn yeah. one on, you turn the other off. You turn one up, you turn the other one down. Period. End of story. And that's just how you were designed. So, if you're trying to consume a diet that contains a significant amount of carbohydrate energy and a significant amount of fat, then cells literally are like, hey, I can't turn on both pathways simultaneously because when I turn one on, it inhibits the action of the other and vice versa. And that's when you end up with a whole collection of metabolic dysfunction that can then increase your chronic disease risk, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And Cyrus just explained Randall cycle that was... um you know, published in 1963, and I talked about this in episode 204 with Dr. Rob Sirews, and he even brought in the role of glucagon, the role of uh, insulin and glucagon in Randall cycle as well, which adds another level of complexity to it. And and guys, uh, for you for you listeners, what we just discussed in the past half an hour, or so is this very new emerging area of research, I've, I've just sort of caught up with my uh, PhD supervisor a few months ago, and she was telling me that the, the hot topic these days in science, in metabolism, is m- metabolites as signaling molecule. We need to look at substrates like fats and amino acids and glu- glucose, not just as energy or as substrates anymore, we are looking at, its, at, their, at their roles in signaling, like you said, uh, post-translational, post-transcriptional modifications to transporters, to receptors, to enzymes, to hormones. And this is such a revelation as to why our body works the way we do.
1: Yeah, so there's, there's one enzyme in particular that I think is literally, or there's one, I should say, metabolite in particular that is in my opinion the 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 all-star of them all when it comes to this particular concept that you're talking about which is a metabolite who has a who is a result of a uh of an energy generation process that serves as a signaling molecule to shut down another signaling process yeah do you have any can you guess what it is do you have any idea um
0: I mean I know STEL CoA does that. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh um, yeah, citrate does that.
1: Citrate, uh, yeah. You're you're on the right yeah. path? You're on the right path?
0: I'm thinking of the, the citrate to oh god, this is like biochemistry back in back in undergrad. Um, into the um, carnitine transporters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, tell us now.
1: Okay. malonyl CoA, do you remember this one?
0: Yes. Yes. Me- yeah. melanin-CoA. Yeah. Exactly. And that's exactly what I thought about. Because S-CoA into citrate into malonate, and then you block the intake of fat because this is this is the substrate that is being um, produced via glycolysis into pyruvate into that 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 area, and then that is the Randall cycle that happens right there.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. And it's like. The, the the function of malonyl so so malonyl CoA is basically involved in like fatty acid biosynthesis. So you're manufacturing fatty acids, you're elongating them, and as in malonyl CoA production ends up increasing as a result of that. So it doesn't make sense to try and elongate and build fatty acids and burn fatty acids or or oxidize them at the same time. So what ends up happening is that in the elongation process and in the synthetic process, malonyl CoA is basically activated, and malonyl CoA goes to the to the uh, to the mitochondrial network, and it blocks beta-oxidation of fatty acids. And it says, hey, all of you who are trying to burn fatty acids right now, stop. Because there's a synthetic process which is happening over here, let this thing happen. When the synthetic process dies down, you can then begin to burn them if you have, if you have extra substrate, right? So it's a perfect example of a signaling molecule that is not used for an energy generation process. It's literally just a messenger that goes from one part of the cell to another part of the cell to relay a message in the same way that the ceramins and the diacyglycerols are signaling molecules that went up to the inside of the insulin receptor that blocked the action of IRS-1 that said, hey, I'm going to shut you down right now because we have a huge system-wide defect. I need you to chill out for a second, right?
0: Yeah, yep. and I'll give you another example of this as well, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Yeah, there yeah, is yeah. such thing they call beta-hydroxybutylation, which has the, exact, um, which has the effect on DNA level. So we're talking about HDAC inhibitor um, sort of um, similar function. And, and Buck Institute um, is, is researching a lot on this using, um, I believe, LBHB as a signaling molecule. So there's RBHB, which is used mainly for, for energy. And then what most researchers believe is that LBHB is being used for signaling. So that, that plays into role, into the longevity, into energy balance, and all of that. So, um, in your book, Mastering Diabetes, I want to go back to that. And, mm-hmm. and I, I remember reading, you know, you were saying type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, but you mentioned type 1.5 diabetes. What the hell is type 1.5 diabetes? <laughs> what the hell? I, how, I've never heard of it. And I've, I've, I've researched diabetes. I'm, you know, when, when I looked at it, i like, I've never heard of this. This I is mean, very you've interesting.
2: Heard, you've heard of LADA, right? L-A-D-A?
1: Latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, maybe?
0: Okay,
2: yeah they're equivalent.
1: Okay. It, it's okay. Code. You should, I you didn't should know that we we'll call called 1.5. Maybe yeah. those days
0: in my day, yeah. they would call that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's kind of an interchangeable term. Again, it's going back to what we we're talking about earlier. It's semantics. Some people call it 1.5. Right. Some people call it LADA, but effectively it is, it is adult onset, slow progressing type one diabetes. It occurs in adults who are generally over the age of 30 and it is an autoimmune attack on the insulin producing beta cells that, lets, that reduces insulin output, okay? The difference, the primary difference between type 1 and 1. 1.5 is two things. Number one, the speed at which insulin, uh, if the speed at which the beta cells are destroyed or when they, the speed at which the beta cells commit apoptosis is much slower in type 1.5 than it is in type 1. And number two, the magnitude of the assault is lower And as a result of that, people who are living with type 1.5 diabetes, some of them never get to full insulin dependence. If you're living with type 1 diabetes, chances are within 12 to 18 months, you're going to be fully insulin dependent. You're going to be making effectively zero insulin within 12 to 18 months. You're going to have to inject insulin using a pump or a pen or a syringe. And you're going to have to substitute for all of the insulin that you normally would be able to produce. But in type 1.5, some people end up going from like 100% production to like 60% or 100 to like... 35% 35% production, but they don't get to zero and as a result of that they still have some endogenous insulin production It's just a slower kind of weaker autoimmune process that happens in adults over the age of 30
0: Interesting. Yeah in this show we talked about even type 3 diabetes.
1: Yeah, do <laughs> you know what that you know alzheimer's?
0: alzheimer's um, be, and, right? and, and,
2: and I just want to mention What we have for your listeners we have experienced A large number of people being misdiagnosed as living with type 2 diabetes when really you can objectively and factually diagnose someone actually type 1.5. And the diagnosis matters because when you do understand that, yeah, antibodies are present, then the... The, the care changes, right? The evidence-based care would be you got you have to use an appropriate amount of insulin, and a lot of people, they're scared of that because they think, oh, wow, I got diagnosed with type 2, and I'm, I did my research, and I'm sure to be able to reverse this. And mm-hmm. a lot of people just go down this path, and it's unfortunate. And the biggest red flag is somebody who is underweight being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. That's the immediate trigger. Let's run the C-peptide test. Let's run a full panel of antibody tests and let's try and get the right diagnosis here so it's just something we see over and over again in our
0: program and i feel like you know a psa here to tell your audience and and, and in asia it's actually very common to see underweight type 2 diabetics mm. um again you know i don't know whether they're actually type yeah. 1.5 diabetes but i think it's worth definitely you Absolutely. know going every back every single in there. one of those people should get tested just to see yeah. it, right and just yeah. figure it out yeah, because most people, they're like, oh, it's just the Asian gene. You know, they can't gain weight or whatever. <laughs> the but, Asian uh, gene. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, I wish I have the Asian gene. Like, I have. The reason I ended up researching cardiovascular disease and, cardi- uh, and diabetes is because my mom's side has very high prevalence of obesity and diabetes. And my dad passed away from stroke and he had a heart attack before. So that side has high cardiovascular disease prevalence as well. So I ended up studying both of them
1: oh wow that's interesting that's interesting so you probably know better than a lot of people that there's a huge crossover between the development of insulin resistance slash diabetes as well as cardiovascular disease as well right yeah that's something that you you talk about a lot
0: yeah absolutely i mean that that was my whole thesis is basically looking at why is there an increased risks of cardiovascular disease in the diabetic population but also after myocardial infarction the diabetic population also has higher risk of heart failure and arrhythmia. So like looking at metabolism and why the metabolic inflexibility is affecting the heart's function um and, and the um the energy def- deficiency caused by myocardial infarction. Um, being exacerbated by the metabolic inflexibility is what I looked at. So Dog. I use hypoxia as a subset of ischemia. So because hypoxic hypoxic re- response is so quick that we can just measure it right away rather than waiting for ischemic reperfusion. Because ischemia, you know, or the, the blockage of, of blood vessels um, or the um, the lack of blood flow into the heart, it's so... Uh, multifaceted, right? You have the lack of substrates going in, you have the lack of oxygen going in, you have the lack of waste coming out, you have the, the uh, accumulation of oxidative damage while all of that is happening. So we chose hypoxia as a very um, succinct sort of uh, uh, insult to the heart, my, my mm-hmm. uh, cardiomyocytes. Sorry, um, And then I looked at re- uh, reoxygenation and then looking at um, heart function as well.
1: Got it. Where, where can I read your thesis? I want to read this for no question.
0: Um, I, I've, um, I've turned my thesis into three um, papers now. Um, you oh, You can cool. just, just search my name. So first author, um, I think the first paper is the model of type 2 diabetic rats. Um, so that's just about the modeling and the dose response. The second paper, I believe it's um, a chronic hypoxia. So I put the diabetic rats in the hypoxia chamber and then looking at the effect of chronic hypoxia on... Um, metabolism, specifically fatty acid oxidation and glycolysis. And I looked at the difference between um, the P-par-alpha and HIF response. So p alpha is, you know, very responsible for fatty acid oxidation and HIF usually upregulates glycolysis. But as you said, if you upregulate uh, fatty acid too much, you will downregulate glycolysis. But in these rats, you know, even with HIF activation, it doesn't go up, like the glycolysis doesn't go up because of the high, fat, um, high fatty acid oxidation. And then I believe the third paper is using a fatty acid transporter inhibitor to try and reverse that. And we did, did see an um, increase in glycolysis in the diabetic heart. However, the drug is not reversible, so that's not ideal. It's just a proof of concept.
1: Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. So yeah, I feel like I, I got to read this in like full detail to like fully wrap my head around it. But th- th- you're speaking my language which is what I like about <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to respect your time as well because we, we've gone over an hour. This is a super interesting conversation. I can go, go on for like two hours, honestly. Um, <laughs> um, so to wrap us all out, uh, you know, we spoke a lot about the, the difference between you know fats and carbs in the role of nutrition and dietary intake versus uh, energy expenditure. And we talked a lot about the don'ts, like right? don't consume both carbs and fat at a very high degree. You know, ideally, you want to find out what substrate works best for you and make sure you are not in excess um, extreme excess of, of calories on top of that. So we talked about the don'ts. Let's talk about the do's, you know, to wrap this all up in your Mastering Diabetes book. Let's talk about what should people actually do, you know, in terms of exercise or intermittent fasting or keto diet. What do you actually recommend? Lat, this is my favorite thing to talk about, okay? <laughs> that, let's talk about the positive. We, we, we've been very morbid in talking about how, how the disease progression happens. Let's talk about the, the happy things as we go close to the new year. We're, we're recording on you know, December 28th here. So oh, as cool. we go into the new year, let's talk about the positives. Yeah.
2: So we, in the book, we describe a very simple traffic light system for deciding which foods to put in your body and, and how much, all right? So there's a green light, a yellow light, and a red light category. The green light category is, the primary characterization here is, you get to eat these foods when you're hungry until you're satisfied. You don't really need to think about how much you're consuming because they're all whole foods with a lot of water and a lot of fiber, which is the key distinction. We could do a whole other show on the, dis- the distinction between the research that's talking about refined carbohydrates and the problems that those you know cause, versus whole, intact, whole carbohydrates. Completely different story. So fruits, that's the first food listed in that category. That's gonna be things like mangoes and peaches and papayas and bananas and pears. Again, all whole fruits. Then starchy vegetables, that's gonna be potatoes. You know, a yam would be in there, butternut squash, acorn squash. Then you have beans and peas and lentils. All right, that's the third category. Then intact whole grains. Intact being the key word, that's quinoa, that's brown rice, that's farro, that's millet. All intact, unrefined whole grains are fantastic. Then you have leafy greens, that's gonna be lettuce, arugula, chard, kale, all that stuff. Then you have non-starchy vegetables. That's gonna be things like bell peppers. You could put carrots in that category. Um, Zucchini, cucumber. Then we move into, you know, s- mushrooms we have in this category. Can, it's going to be hard to overeat on mushrooms. Uh, we also have herbs and spices in here. Those aren't technically whole foods, but eat those to your heart's content. You know, flavor your food. Those, that's all green light stuff. Then the yellow light category, these are foods, These are they're healthy foods, right? So it's just that we're not saying you should eat an unlimited quantity. You don't just sit down and eat these you know, till, you, till you're satisfied. It would not work out so well for insulin sensitivity. These are foods that are naturally high in their fat content. They are a little bit more refined, or they're high in sodium. Those are the three characterizations of these foods. So avocados in this category, nuts and seeds, okay? Soy products. So the most intact form of soy would be edamame. That's unrefined whole soy. Then you get into tempeh and tofu. Again, all good options, but they're, again, a little more refined, and they're high in their fat content. So soy products are going to be roughly 35% of calories coming from fat, even in the whole form of, of edamame. And then we have some refined stuff. So brown rice pasta. You can literally get pasta that's just brown rice. It's one ingredient, which is great. But it's still better to have that whole intact brown rice. That whole intact counterpart is still optimal. So we have pastas in this category. There's now bean pastas. There's all kinds of pastas. And, again, they're good options then as far as the foods that are high in sodium fermented foods a lot of research showing the benefits of fermented foods but again they're high in sodium and that's not going to be ideal for people living with insulin resistance listening with with type 2 diabetes you know the metabolic syndrome trying to lower your blood pressure we just have to be careful with those so that's the yellow light category now the red light category these are foods we suggest you minimize or just completely avoid and that is you know going to lend towards you know the saturated fat that cyrus was talking about earlier so we have, you know, red meat in there, white meat. Um, we, fish is in this category. Again, most fish higher in its fat content. You know, no fiber. Um, it's just not, not ideal. So we also have oil in this category. And the reason we put oil is because, again, it's another refined food. You, you've taken out the water content. You've taken out the fiber. You've taken out the carbohydrate. You've taken out the protein. You're left with, you know, 4,000 calories per pound of pure fat with, depending on the quality of the oil, some, some micronutrients left over. So again, we help people reverse insulin resistance. We help people. Uh, we have so many stories of people getting off their meds of type 2 diabetes, reversing prediabetes, you know, type 1s, changing their lives. So we are really focused on that specific goal. Oil is not going to help you become more insulin sensitive. It's just not. All right. Um, so that's the oil category. Then we, the basics, right? So there's all kinds of processed plant-based foods that have come out. We're not recommending those, okay? Whether it's a plant-based burger that's been processed or whether it's a Twinkie, like this common sense stuff, like that's all in the red light category. So none of this processed food. And that's the simple system. As far as how much fat one should be recommending people consume to optimize their insulin sensitivity, we're suggesting you don't go above 30 grams of total fat per day or a maximum of 15% of your calories coming from fat, and that's you know you're all the food. Because one thing people forget is that bananas contain fat, not just fat, essential fatty acids. So does lettuce. So does so do beans. Like all whole foods contain fat and essential fatty acids in small quantities. So when you add a, you add this up over the course of a day, eating a large amount of your calories from whole carbohydrate-rich foods you end up getting a pretty significant amount of dietary fat. And we put in an insurance policy in our program of suggesting that everybody in the morning have either ground up chia seed or ground up flax seed in order to meet, so one tablespoon, to meet your essential fatty acid requirements, all right? Right then and there, you meet that and you're just getting bonus from your whole foods. And that's really the the dietary protocol. But um, as far as that, you know, happy new year, uh, positive message, We love to encourage people to get to enjoy fruit once again, because a lot of people with diabetes have been told, "No, you have to limit your fruit consumption. And you on our program, you get to earn your way towards eating more fruit. So it's not going to happen on day one. It's a process of like you guys were talking about earlier. You can't do both. You can't be eating a ton of fat and a ton of carbohydrate. So you have to reduce your fat intake while you're increasing your whole carbohydrate uh food intake and that has to happen together and you do that in a system and that's why you know we wrote the book to explain it that's why we have a coaching program to walk people through the nuances and the details of this process so they don't see frustrating readings of 200 and 250 when you're transitioning there's an art to it is a process we guide people through that but at the end of the day, you get to work yourself towards eating more whole
0: fruit. And that is usually a very positive, happy message for most people. That is so interesting. That is literally the complete opposite of the keto diet. And, and even avoiding omega-3s from, from fish, which is quite interesting what I heard.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, so we have a whole have... section on that in the oh, book, God. Um, and it's, it's very detailed, well, and we go well, to the science just, on that topic.
1: Just, just to be clear, just to be clear, we're, we're not suggesting that you should avoid omega-3 essential fatty acids from your diet. We're just saying that fish may not be the ideal source for source. that omega-3 fatty acids. We suggest people get them from ground flax seeds and ground chia seeds. And then also, you can also get it from algae sources. If you want to eat a little bit of fish, it's not the end of the world, but there are alternatives to fish and omega-3s are of utmost importance and nobody's gonna argue with that.
2: Yeah. And exactly. again, the key point in the book, which we go into detail, is it's more about what you're not eating than what you are eating. It's about optimizing the conversion by not eating too many omega-6 fats. Mm-hmm. And that's the big part of the conversation that's missing and you're not seeing. When like, people go to the store, they buy these labels. Oh, rich in omega-3s, rich in omega-3s. But it's like, no, no, no. Are you are – you con- focus on the conversion in that process and optimizing that, which then also has a bunch of other benefits when you do that rather than just trying to supplement. So it's like this idea of always going to the root cause versus oh let me just put these band-aids on let me just go oh my my fatty acid profile is not good so i'm just going to eat a bunch instead of being like oh wait a minute what was the original problem exactly
0: exactly going to the root cause and also finding the optimal amount to take in an optimal amount that is perfect for your health and well-being and and you, you know what i really wish right now from all this conversation i really wish that people like you guys are going to get together with people like Jeff Vollick Steve Finney from Verta Health, who are very pro ketogenic diet. Run a study. We have a defined um, definition of insulin resistance. We measure how much insulin insulin resistance is improved via ketogenic diet and via you know high carbs diet, and then we're also measuring inflammatory responses mm. and inflammatory biomarkers, and then. For once and for all, we can put this to rest and we can say that it's personalized medicine at the end of the day and then we can map it to different individuals and their genetics and go down that path and then go down that rabbit hole.
1: Lat, connect me with them. I would love yeah. to run that study. I've, I've literally written the protocol for that study already because I want it to happen. There's no question about it. I and saw it, that coming. It has to happen. No question.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really look forward to it. And um, because we haven't covered a lot of stuff that I actually wrote out that I want to cover, that I wanted to ask. So I would love to have you guys for episode two sometime next year. Um, Let's do it. For you to come back and and we can go deep into more about your book, about what the new research is after, you know, since we've talked. And for our listeners who would like to find you guys, um, please let our listeners know where can they find you? I would say the best place to start is go to
2: masteringdiabetes.org. That's our website. You can actually take a quiz there. You can see, oh, what is your level of insulin resistance? It's an interesting way. It's like a surrogate for what's going on in your body. So that's fun. We're on all the platforms. So we have our own podcast to type in Mastering Diabetes into any of your favorite podcast platforms. You'll find us there. Uh, we're on Instagram at Mastering Diabetes, TikTok at Mastering Diabetes, YouTube. So um that's really fun and the book you can get anywhere books are sold most people buy it on amazon we read our own audiobook added in a little bit of new research and a little bit of context that's because you know the audiobook is filmed obviously after the book is finally printed and everything is locked in so the audiobook is really fun for that and we had a chance to really talk about our thought process and mindset in writing each chapter so that's on audible that's on google play anywhere you find audiobooks and um, yeah, that's, that's where you can find us.
0: Cool, anything, anything to add there, Cyrus?
1: Uh, no, I, Robbie nailed it. Um, Lat, this has been fun. I mean, you're, even though we come from like slightly different educational backgrounds and you have one set of experience and knowledge and we have some slightly different, I, I love, absolutely love talking with people like you because it's an opportunity to like really deep dive into the research and ask some simple questions and put our egos aside and be like, you know what? Like, this is not about me. It's not about you. It's about what does the research say, and how can we truly make people healthier. So that's Absolutely. a long way of me saying thank you. You're a stud, and I totally appreciate. No, it. Yeah.
0: thank you very much. Um, it has been a pleasure. I really got a workout off my brain today. Um, <laughs> you know, you have really stimulated that that you know that intellectual capacity that that you the, the sense of curiosity and intrigue. When, when you're presented a problem and you're like, I want to solve this. Like you really sparked that or re-sparked that in me, I, would, I, was, I could say. Um, so thank you very much to, to both of you um, by sharing your experience, your story, your advice, tips, and all the information um, in, in this area. Um, and can't wait to have you guys around again.
1: You got a deal. Thanks for telling me, man. You.